Good evening. 1 Timothy chapter 1, and it can be found on page 1191 in the Church Bible. 1 Timothy chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Saviour and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have departed from these and have turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they are talking about or what they so confidently affirm. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers for murderers, for the, sexual for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God which he entrusted to me. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that, reason, that very reason I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honour and glory forever and ever. Amen. Timothy, my son, I am giving you this command in keeping with the prophecies once made about you, so that by recalling them, you may fight the battle well, holding on to faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected, and so have suffered shipwreck with regard to the faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, 
whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. Thank you, Sue. If you have uh, that page open in your Bibles, please keep it open. Uh, if you don't yet have it open, please do open it up. Uh, the next 20 minutes or so will be agony if you don't have it open, so you've been warned. <laughs> it might be agony anyway, but do what you can to mitigate the problem. Right. Here we have a letter written to a man in Ephesus roughly 2,000 years ago. What on earth has it got to do with us? Well, first of all, there's something about the shape of this book and the way that it's written that causes us to prick up our ears, to to read over Timothy's shoulder, if you like. So um, I won't sort of go through and explain sort of verse by verse any particular part of the letter tonight, because otherwise I'll I'll be robbing the joy of doing that from uh, the preachers who are to follow. But you'll notice verses 1 and 2. There's a, what looks like a fairly standard greeting, though when you look at it closely, it is different in some ways. Normally, Paul addresses his letter in terms of uh, coming from Christ our Savior, but here he says, God our Savior. That's an interesting thing to note, isn't it? Why does he need to affirm that, that the work of the Father and the Son are together and inseparable? What Jesus does to rescue us is not in any way divorced from what the Father is doing. God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is our Savior. Why does he need to reaffirm that? Well, as we read on, you'll see verse 3. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus, so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer. There's a presenting issue in the church in Ephesus. There's a problem People are teaching things which are contrary to the gospel of Jesus. And Paul says to Timothy, I left you there when I had to go to Macedonia so that you could sort this out. And it's very strong language, isn't it? To command them not to preach false doctrines any longer. It's a serious matter, as serious as it could be. Timothy has a commission from the apostle. Command. No longer teach these false doctrines. Uh, And as he goes on, he, he explains what that command is. But I just want to say something about the way the letter's supposed to work. So it starts, you see, in the singular. It starts addressed to the individual, to Timothy. So he says, as I urged you, and that word you is singular. Greek has plural and singular versions of uh, you know, personal articles like you, uh, whereas uh, English doesn't, or at least sort of southern English doesn't. If you travel a bit further north of Watford, uh, what you'll find is that sometimes if people are talking to a group, they'll say things like, yous. And they're not talking about sheep, they're talking about a plural group of human beings that they're addressing. And if you turn over to the very end of the book, you'll notice something, well, you may not think it's that interesting, uh, but the, <laughs> the last phrase of the book is grace be with you all. And the all is added because English can't cope with yous. Okay, so what he actually says is grace be with yous, grace be with all of you. So this is a letter that is addressed to Timothy, but the church is expected to read it over his shoulder. 
which is a masterstroke on Paul's part. If he just writes a letter to Timothy and says, look, don't show this to anyone, just keep it to yourself, but this is what I want you to do, what's going to be the first thing that the person Timothy goes and commands not to teach false doctrine anymore? What's the first thing they're going to, be to, going to say to him? Well, it says you. You know, who are you to tell me what to do? Well, Timothy's got this letter from Paul, from the apostle, from the one who preached the gospel to them. This is why I'm commanding you to stop it. I have the authority of the apostle himself. But if Paul had just written a letter to the whole church, it would undermine Timothy. You know, he would do or say something, and they'd say, well, it's not in the letter. You see, this is a letter delegating authority, but in some quite specific ways, spelling out how that apostolic authority is to be worked out in the life of the church. It might help you to remember that this is how it's working, that the whole letter is written expecting people to read it over the shoulder. If I tell you about my uh, French teacher at school, Mr. Scott, I assume that was his real name, although I'm not certain, because when he studied Russian at Cambridge in the 1950s, um, he was approached by a man in a grey suit. He said, like international travel, (laughs) looking for employment. Anyway, he found himself in East Berlin, West Berlin, um, but listening to radio transmissions in East Berlin. Uh, And his Russian was very good, and he would sit there and he would transcribe uh, the Russian uh, that was being spoken into English. And then suddenly, it's Christmas Eve, the clock ticks to midnight, and over the airwaves, crystal clear, and very Merry Christmas to all our English listeners. Everything the Russians were saying over the radio was for the benefit of the listeners the other side of the wall. They knew they were being listened to. And this letter is intended to be read by the church at Ephesus over Timothy's shoulder, but it's also intended for us to read over Timothy's shoulder. To understand, well, to understand what? It's got something to do with doctrine, hasn't it? I urged you, uh, when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. There's false teaching in the church and it's meaning that the church is dysfunctional. Do you see that? So don't teach uh, these false doctrines any longer because these things promote controversy. They promote division within the church, myths and endless genealogies. They produce controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. And we'll come back to that, that word, God's work, in a moment. But God's work is by faith. And what is the goal of that? What is the goal of teaching truthfully, teaching the gospel of Jesus? Well, verse 5, the goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. How on earth can the church be what it is meant to be? How can the church be the body of which Jesus said, by this shall all people know that you are my disciples, that you love one another? Where does love like that, that could only come from Jesus, where does love like that come from? 
Is it as straightforward as just commanding people, saying, look, you need to be more loving? You want to be part of this church? You need to be a loving person. Have you ever sort of tried to operate that sort of system in your own life? The thing I've got to do this week is I've just got to love other people more. (laughs) Where does it get you? It doesn't get you very far because look what Paul says. Love comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. There's a connection between faith and the transformation of the inward person. A clear conscience, a pure heart. There's something that takes place inside the Christian believer that enables them to show the sort of love that God is concerned for in his household, the church. The way Christians are supposed to treat each other is not possible if you just stay the way you are. You have to be transformed. Transformed by what? Well, uh, as we look down, just skim over a few uh, verses, you'll notice that Paul himself becomes the example of the power of the gospel at work. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Why does Paul love God? Why does Paul love the people of God? How has he been transformed from being a blasphemer and a violent man into being a trusted apostle who epitomizes in his own life the love of Jesus? Verse 14. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Notice those two words, faith and love that we're in that verse higher up. This love that comes from clean conscience, pure heart, and a sincere faith. That faith and that love come from Jesus. They're a gift. And it's only by believing that gospel, it's only by putting your faith in Jesus to be the one who has made everything right for you, who has reached out to you in grace, given you his riches at his expense, not because of anything that you've done, not on your merits, but simply because he loves you. Now, throughout what what are called the pastoral epistles, these letters that are written to people who have pastoral responsibility for the churches, two of them are written to Timothy and one is written to Titus, Paul interjects these what what are called trustworthy sayings. And the first one uh, is here in verse 15. Here is a trustworthy saying. And they're all focused on keeping the gospel, the good news of Jesus, the gracious offer of Jesus, of eternal life to people who do not deserve it, of fellowship to people who do not deserve it, of being God's children to those who by nature have spat in God's eye and tried to keep him out of his own universe. Here's a trustworthy saying, says Paul, that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. And so he says, verse 16, for that very reason I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ might might display his immense patience 
as an example to those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. So as we come to the end of the first chapter, I'm not going to go through all the chapters like this, by the way. But as we come to the end of the first chapter, here's what we've seen. This is a letter that comes with the authority of the apostle, but in order to strengthen the authority of Timothy's mission and ministry in Ephesus. We're reading over his shoulder. And as we read over his shoulder, this is what we see. That Paul is saying to him that the church can only be set on its right footing by the true preaching of the gospel. It is only this gospel that actually, yes, there is something wrong with us. Yes, we have rebelled against God. Yes, we deserve nothing good from him. And yet, he has sent his son into the world to save sinners. That's how generous God is. And having that central in the church is the cornerstone that allows the church to grow up healthily. I haven't heard the remarks myself. You'll know that I've been at uh, GAFCON in Kigali all week. I understand that yesterday, I think it was yesterday, the Archbishop of York, with with a sort of waft of the hand, said, well, of course, you know, we're not going to be judged by doctrine, are we? We're going to be judged by how we love each other. Which sounds so penetrating, doesn't it? Sounds so right. And yet what Paul is telling us here is that there is absolutely no way that you're going to love each other, not in the way that Jesus wants you to, unless you have sound doctrine. Unless you believe the right things. Unless the gospel is at the heart of your church and at the heart of your life. That's what transformed Paul from being an absolute brute into being someone who shed tears over the state of the churches that he was looking after, who loved them so much that in the end he was prepared to die in order to bring the gospel to them. What changed him from being brutal to being a man completely exemplifying love? It was the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, And that connection between how you live and what you believe goes all the way through the book. You will not live a godly Christian life unless you believe the truth about Jesus. So to sort out a church that is a mess, Timothy is told, get the teaching straight and the lifestyle will follow you. And if you want to know how much of a mess the Ephesian church was in, you know, we've, we've sort of picked up that there's controversy, that there's a bit of bickering going on. Well, in chapter 2, when he talks about the prayer meeting, he says, I want you to, to pray holding up holy hands. Uh, and the implication seems to be, keep, keep your hands where I can see them, because actually they've been breaking out into brawls. So one of the, you know, the prayer meeting's become a punch-up. Uh, so that one of the things that uh, he says, you know, when, when, you're, when you're looking to appoint people into pastoral ministry, when you're looking for overseers, i.e. kind of vicars or bishops or whatever, um, here's a list of things they're not to be like. They're not to be a brawler. They're not to be someone who's given to getting involved in fist fights. They're not to be a drunkard. They're not to be an adult. I mean, they're not to be an adulterer, and the list goes on. Why would you have to give a list like that if that's not what the current elders of the church were like? The lifestyle's in the mess. The lifestyle of the church is in a mess. It does not look like what Jesus wants his church to look like. And it's only the true preaching of the gospel, only putting the truth about Jesus in its right place at the heart of the church's life that can ever change that. 
Now, if we're working our way through uh, chapter 1, you'll see that we've reached verse 17. This astonishing verse that has given rise to many hymns, one very famous one in particular that, we're, uh, you know, that we often sing. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And on first blush, it looks as though, and maybe, maybe this is what happened, as though when Paul tells his own story, of how he has been saved from a life of brutality and blasphemy, of enmity with God and enmity with his people. As he talks about the mercy that he's received, he sort of bursts out in praise, in wonder. And he starts listing off things about God's nature for which he wants to praise him. It feels like a sort of spontaneous outburst. Uh, and maybe it was, but it also looks very deliberate because if you get to the end of the book, just turn over with me to chapter 6 uh, and look at um, verse 14. He talks about something else. He talks about the second coming of Jesus. And once again, he kind of overflows in praise to Keep, keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and might forever. Amen. Everything that's said about God in chapter 1, verse 17 is said again about God in chapter 6, verses 15 and 16. We're told God is eternal in, in chapter 1. Uh, we're told in verse 15 of chapter 6 that time belongs to God. He says, in his own time. Uh, that's, not, um, that's come into English as a phrase. I think it's come from this verse to sort of suggest that when we delay doing things, we're acting in a rather high-handed manner and, and acting as if we were God. I think that's how it came into... So when you say, well, in your own time, there's a sort of suggestion that you're being rather arrogant. I think that's, that's kind of where it comes from because the point is that time belongs to God. So the, the, the second coming of Jesus will happen and it'll happen when it needs to happen because God controls time. Time is his it is his own. He is the eternal God, uh, the one who is not affected by time, but who rules over it. He is immortal. You see that uh, in verse uh, 16 uh, of chapter 6 and uh, 17 of chapter 1. He's invisible. No one has ever seen him or can see him. Uh, chapter 6, verse 16. He is uniquely God. He is the only one like him, the only ruler, king of kings. He is the king. Reality obeys him, belongs to him. And so he is rightly honored and glorified forever and ever. Amen. Now, the, the puzzling thing, I think, about those two, what we call doxologies, outbursts of praise, uh, is that Many of the things listed in it are things that would probably make it onto our top five things about God that make us go, wow. Okay, eternity, you think about that for very long, your brain starts to melt, and you say, wow, God's amazing. 
immortality. When you think about the fact, uh, not only that God uh, will go on forever, but that he has always existed, death is not a possibility for him. It's not just that it doesn't happen, it is that he cannot but be alive because he is the eternal one, he is the alpha and the omega. Uh, time exists within his reality, but he does not exist within time. Uh, then your brain starts to melt and you say, wow, God, you're really great. He's the ruler of everything. Everything belongs to him. He has the right, because he made the universe, he has the right to say what the universe should do. And that should make us say, wow, because I promise you, if you find yourself in the, in the presence of real human power even, it makes you go a little bit weak at the knees. I told you about the time I managed to avoid meeting Dan Quayle, I'm sure, but uh, I, was just, I was just so intimidated by the guy with the Secret Service detail. <laughs> Not because it was, he was a delightful man. Uh, my friend, we were at the same party, my friend and his wife were dancing and Dan Quayle and his wife were dancing and my friend uh, trod on Dan Quayle's foot and he said, you just assaulted a former vice president. <laughs> and his secret service guys were just over the other side of the floor, but it was a joke. Lovely man, so much power I couldn't cope with it. God is king. And we rightly say, wow, why on earth? Does Paul make such a fuss about God's invisibility? He mentions it in one word here and in five words at the end. No one has ever seen or can see. He lives in an approachable light. Well, there are lots of reasons that God's invisibility does make us say, wow, it shows that he exists outside and beyond our, he doesn't belong to the created world of trees and rocks and humans. He, he is beyond that we can't investigate him he, he's not open to we can only know him if he reveals himself to us he's not open to our investigation he's not there for us to find he is far too big for us to ever find him on our own but i think there's a really important and significant point to what paul is doing in including invisibility in this in these two doxologies and it's related to what I said a moment ago uh, about um, God's work in uh, chapter 1, uh, verse 4. Kind of related. So the word that we've translated as God's work here in chapter 1, verse 4, we've been translated for us that way, um, it's li it literally means household management or economia. God's economy, the management of God's household. So that God's work in this instance is, is something to do with household management. Uh, and if you turn to chapter 3 uh, and verse 14, we've got a clue from chapter 1 why Paul wrote the letter, but this is the very heart of the letter. Chapter 3, verse 14, where Paul explains why he's written it. It's always helpful, isn't it, if you don't know what something's about, if the writer says, this is a book about... Here's what Paul says. Chapter 3, verse 14. Although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you'll know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household. Bing! You remember what he said in chapter 1 about God's work. He's talking about the same thing. How should people conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God? 
The church is God's household. It is God's family. And so how people conduct themselves within God's household really matters because what we do as part of his people, we do under his roof. We do as his family. So, Timothy, I've put you there to command people not to teach false doctrine. Why? Well, it doesn't achieve the household management of God. So here he says, if I'm delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. So the truth shapes the church and enables the household management of the church to be right, enables God's people to live as God's people, And that's vital. Why? Because the church is the means by which God makes his truth known to the world and shouts it out to the powers and authorities in the heavenly realms. The church is the pillar and buttress of the truth. It is the church of the living God. It belongs to him. Every square inch of it is holy. Not the building, but the people. And how we conduct ourselves in church matters And how we conduct ourselves in our lives with each other and just in our lives in general matters enormously because we are God's family. And so, Paul goes on to write one of probably what's the most difficult bit of the whole book to understand, but we can begin to understand it very easily this evening. Beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. He appeared in the flesh. Let's just stop there. Who appeared in the flesh? The immortal, invisible, eternal God, whom no one has ever seen or can see, appeared. Actually, that's exactly what Paul was talking about in chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, wasn't it? Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Flip over to chapter 6, what is Paul talking about uh, when he uh, talks about God as the blessed and only ruler, King of kings and Lord of lords? Verse 14, the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. What Paul has done for us is to give us a vision of history in which there are two unimaginably huge events that have happened or will happen. God is so glorious that no one can see him, but he appeared in our world. He appeared in the flesh, he was crucified, and he was vindicated by the Spirit. He rose from the dead. The life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus are a breaking into human reality the unimaginable glory and greatness of God. For what purpose? To save sinners. And where is history heading? He's going to appear again. So how do you live within the church? What transforms us into people who are just obsessed with and in love with Jesus and therefore full of love for each other, knowing how to live as God's family? The invisible God loved you so much that he became visible. The immortal God loved you so much 
that he found a way to die for you. That ought to blow your mind. It's shocking. But glorious. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And history is heading somewhere. And where it is heading is that the God who has appeared once is going to appear again. And if you don't believe he's going to appear again, well, you better go back and think about whether you believe that he appeared in the first place. Because the God who appeared, the invisible God who appeared in human history, said, I am coming back. And Paul says, if you want to know how to live your life in a straight line, if you want to stay on the straight and narrow, you've got those two fixed points in history. Draw a straight line between them. Jesus came into the world to save sinners and he's returning. He's going to appear again. He's going to come again uh, to, to judge and to redeem. And the question for each of us is, am I going to face him as my judge or as my redeemer, as my friend or as my enemy? He broke into the world in order that it could be the case that it would be that he greets me as a friend, as one part of his household, that, that I'm embraced and drawn back into the, into the family of God when he returns. If you live as though that's true, it will change your life forever. Uh, and as you look through the book, you'll see it changes your money, your attitude to money. That's the context in uh, chapter six. It changes your attitude to sex. It changes your attitude to family, to taking care of those in need. Uh, it changes your attitude to prayer. It changes your attitude to your enemies. It changes your attitude to everything. What we believe matters. It shapes everything. And so long before it was cool, Paul basically says, make sure you're on the right side of history. Because history is going somewhere. And it is heading like an express train to the day of the Lord, to the day when Jesus will appear again. Let's live as people who are ready for that day, dependent on the day that has already been, putting our trust in what Jesus did, coming into the world to save sinners. Let's be ready for the day when he appears again. And as we do that, the way we do that is actually by holding out that gospel to a needy, perishing world. Not to keep it to ourselves, but to share it. The church, what's the church's role? What's the point of the, of the household of God? It is to be the pillar and the buttress of the truth, to hold this gospel, this good news of Jesus, out to a needy world. That's an overview of the book. I guess we'll get started on it properly next week. <laughs>